0: Welcome to Fresh Research, a podcast from the Nonprofit Times. We explore some of the most interesting and sometimes provocative findings focused on the world of nonprofits. Thanks for tuning in. Here at the Nonprofit Times, we see tons of great fresh research. So in each episode, we take a recent study or survey and have a conversation with the authors about what they found and why they think it's important for charities. We'll also give away some books and give you access to other valuable information from the Nonprofit Times.
1: The 2020 Donor Advised Fund Report has the most comprehensive data on donor advised funds in the United States. The latest report, covering the 2019 fiscal year, showed a continued decade of growth. For the first time, grants exceeded $25 billion. Hi, it's Mark Arivna for the Nonprofit Times. On the program today is Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust, which has issued the report each year since 2006. The report does not cover 2020. For that, we'll discuss MP Trust's donor-advised fund COVID grant-making survey. It's the first sector-wide review of grant-making in response to COVID-19. It uses self-reported data by sponsors that represented almost half of total grants by DAFs. The survey found that grant-making to charities increased almost 30 percent during the first six months of the year. Now, Here's our conversation with Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. As far as the COVID grant-making survey, you had mentioned that that's, you expected that to be more uh, popular and more trendy than the annual DAF report, although that's just a shorter window of time to look at. Was there anything surprising to you in, in that survey? A lot of the numbers are up, and a lot of the, the, the grant-making is you know, double-digit percentages, uh, something we've, we've heard about all year during COVID.
2: No, there wasn't a surprise, but I guess what it did was fortify my anecdotal information and our own data, right? So we got combined with other DAF sponsors, and then all the anecdotal information that people were giving more, people were giving more, there was, you know, the generosity was accelerated and amplified. And so when we saw these numbers that the grants were up um, 30% in dollar value and 37 percent in number of grants. It just underscored what we were feeling and and observing in our own NPT DAF world, but that other DAF providers were doing the same thing. And I follow the other programs, so to the extent that they you know issue a press release or even talk about anecdotal data, I'll hear it. And I, I knew you know we had a really interesting experience during 2020. Is that um, we usually have extra staff come on in the giving season, which is the last six weeks of the year, just to process grants and contributions, because it's the busiest time for DAFs to both accept contributions and also to make grants. And after the giving season is over, you know, the first week of January, a lot of those people either go to work part-time or they're coming seasonally. We have a lot of repeat people that come in. And then we redeploy other people. We have a whole strategy um, for how we address those needs. And I was shocked that we had to recreate our giving season strategy in, in March and April. We basically had to staff up because the volume was so intense of the, on the grant side that um, we usually like staff down by the middle of January and then we were staffing up again at a time that we never staff up. So this data that we have, that's available on nptrust.org. It's the COVID-19 survey data is compared only to last the year before. So it compares the first two quarters of 2020 to the first two quarters of 2019. And so whenever I'm talking about the increases, I'm only talking about that window of time. So the previous March and April, you know, it was business as usual for us, but, but in 2020, there was a dramatic steep increase in the amount of grants that we made. And COVID, if you remember, we all went into our kind of retreat mode by the middle of March, most of us, that early lockdown, and so a lot of people then, I think, were in their houses, some working from home, some people lost their jobs, but the people who had access to their DAF dollars, which almost everybody does through their tablet or phone, um, were actually responding to the very thing that was keeping them in their homes and, and you know, the fear of getting sick. And I remember the early days, that the death count was just the daily, it was you know, and, then, and it was really intense in New York. And people were giving all over the place. They were giving for local community services, they were giving for vaccine research, for protective um, equipment, for, for healthcare workers, for lunch and dinner for healthcare workers. And so um, we were watching all that money go out. But then when I looked at this data, I, obviously my, my fellow DAF providers and sponsors were also watching a lot of money go out. And so it was great. It was great. We were delighted to be a part of it. And, and you know, I think it, I think this is going to continue into the rest of 2020. Just so you also know that the racial justice grant making was not included in this either. So if you think of that as being Q3 and you look at the whole calendar year, I think giving is going to be up a lot.
1: And that was my next question was, do you expect that to to continue and and show a positive trend upward for giving in 2020 after kind of some concerns in 2019 about whether giving overall was uh, flattening out?
2: You know, I think the social justice grant making is going to be sustained. I think the COVID grant making, and we were counting grants that you couldn't say, oh, that's a COVID grant, because we believed that charities like arts organizations who couldn't put performances on or hold fundraisers that people were still granting to their favorite causes and they were adding the COVID causes above them. So we were putting all the grants into a COVID category because it was impossible to say that's a COVID grant and that isn't if somebody's supporting their favorite charity in a very difficult time. It's because they don't want them to go out of business essentially. It's hard to know the answer to your question. I mean, I think that as the vaccine gets distributed and that sense of that very first sense of the first three or four months where there was a great sense of urgency, I don't know that it's going to continue at the same intensity. Um, I think that I think until we ha- either have herd immunity or and or massive distribution of the vaccine, which maybe some of those are overlapping um, items, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I don't think they're exclusive you know, it's hard to know if the COVID grant making is gonna sustain or maybe taper off a little bit. My guess is it's probably gonna taper off, but I think the residual effect of COVID on the social sector is really gonna to be tough. And I think, um, I think there's a number of charities and I think you've reported on this, I know you have, that aren't gonna make it through. And it's only for the generosity of donors that hung in there during this retrenchment time that some of those will make it through. But I'm sure the sector is gonna experience some attrition because even with all this grant making, I don't think it's makes up for a lot of revenue they would have gotten from other sources.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, most every subsector in in your survey showed uh, double digits uh, percentage increases. I mean, human services was up almost 80% compared to the same two quarters the previous year.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, arts and culture money was down, but the number of grants were up, so people were giving to them in greater amounts, greater numbers of grants, Mm. but in smaller dollar amounts, which is, you know, that happened in 08 and 09, interestingly, Mm. during the recession, funding to the arts went down, and then when the economy started to recover, it got restored to the previous levels. But And human services, and that same period of time went up, and human services is up the most here, 78%, which includes soup kitchens and a lot of really basic needs that people, you know, when you look online, food pantries, uh, you know, the big social service agencies are all in there. So human services went up because people saw the need out there. Healthcare was up as well, 30%, but human services was up 78%. So people really were seeing. You know, I might still have my job, and I might still have a DAF, but there's a lot of my, you know, community members out there that don't.
1: And does the trust plan to do another similar survey for the second half of 2020, or or maybe again next year? It
2: depends. It depends on the willingness of our fellow participants to to step up. We we would like to, but um, we have to knock on those doors and ask. And um, we had a lot of people, you know, say yes immediately and. And we were happy to have them because we we knew we needed a critical mass of dollars to make sure that we could make some you know statements from it. we could derive some conclusions. So we're hoping to, you know I think the other question, and I, I think we already know this from some of the data that's been released is the social justice grant making and the second part of, 2020 versus 2019 went up dramatically. And that's not that's not DAF dollars that I'm talking about. That's just data that's been released from different foundations, different grant-making sources. So it'd be interesting, excuse me, to look at that. We don't have it scheduled yet and we haven't knocked on anybody's doors, but um, we actually had a few entities knock on our door, DAF providers, and say, you know, we know you do the report. Would you consider doing a COVID, you know, kind of pullout special? And I said, you know, I said, yeah, I guess so. I don't know, let me talk to my colleagues. And so they rallied in a minute and said, yes. My colleagues said, yes. Yeah. So we had a handful of people because they figured if we were providing our regular data this would be, you know, a similar but quite different kinds of data points to look at. So I think we're going to do it. I, I mean, some of the COVID data is going to come out in the next big report that we do, but not in the same way. We, we, we normally don't break these subsectors like we do, did in this report. And I thought that was great. I mean, when I saw us breaking it up, I'm thinking, well, maybe we should do that on the big report, but we don't have that in the cards yet either. But I think when you look and see the difference between human services, international environment and animals, it's interesting to see, you know, how the deaf donors are making their grant recommendations.
1: We'll discuss MP Trust's 14th Annual Donor Advised Fund Report with Eileen Heisman right after this.
0: If you like what you're hearing, share it with friends and colleagues on social media use the hashtag freshresearch or retweet the Nonprofit Times link and you'll be eligible to win a book from the NPT library. Another way for folks to find the show, rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more than 30 years, the Nonprofit Times has been the leading business publication for nonprofit management. To subscribe, visit shopthenonprofittimes.com. You'll also find special issue coverage, relevant research like our Salary and Benefits Report, and Best Nonprofits to Work for, plus other special reports and webinars. And keep up with the latest breaking news and in depth reporting at the NonprofitTimes.com.
1: Now, on to the 2020 Donor Advised Fund Report with Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust. This report pretty much covers pre-COVID, the full year, and you do this annually since 2006, so this is the, the 14th edition pretty much. Yep. At first blush, I just look and it's like, well, of course, DAFs are just shooting straight up, contributions, grants, assets, everything going up. Was there anything different about this year or unique uh, in terms of, of what you saw in the data? You know,
2: a, a couple of things. I mean, I don't know that the standard deduction change in the Tax Reform Act the year before really affected DAF donors. But when you look at the number of DAF accounts, you can see them going up a lot. Um, And we know that's workplace DAFs, which are a more recent entry into the DAF world, you know, where instead of, having a deduction and going to United Way or the Jewish Federation or Catholic Charities, whatever you're having people deduct from their paycheck and the money's going into a DAF instead of to a federated funding organization. So we've seen that trend really be dramatic. And if you look at the numbers, the biggest, steepest increase is in the total number of donor advice fund accounts. And that's, I think almost 100% attributable to small workplace staff. So that's different. Um, and then because that number is so bigger, the average DAF size is coming down because you have a much bigger number to divide into the assets, right? So the, de- the denominator is the number, the 873. And so as that number goes up, when you divide it into the AUM, you just have it. So, so it's bringing the average DAF size down. So neither of those two things surprised. So, the, the, so 19.4 and 2.7 down, that wasn't a surprise. I think what continues to just be remarkable to me not surprising, but notable, is the contributions continue to go up and that the grants are, you know, are are really, are being paid out really generously. And I, you know, since 2010, it's a 190% increase in the DAF dollars since 2010, between 20, you know, so the 11 years, and that's a monster. And I think, you know, I attribute that to a few different things. One is the market was really up. So when the market's up, we usually see You know, grant. You know that you know people have actually more money in their DAF account to grant out because if they're invested, the assets have gone up. The grantable assets have gone up because the market's gone up. But I think the other thing about it, about the um, grant dollars going out, is that people are. um, That there's a lot of folks that look and see the needs around them, and they really, really, really want to respond. And the digital uh, simplicity and the convenience of banking that's basically spilled over into the DAF world has made grant making. I mean, you can open your DAF account. Almost all the providers have, you know, web-based, not apps necessarily, but have app-friendly transactional tools. And you can go in basically with your thumb, open your DAF account, make a grant recommendation to one of your favorite charities that's probably already in there. You know, maybe you're a mater, maybe it's an organization you're on the board of. And you can make a grant recommendation 24-7 you know with a few clicks and i think the digital nature of grant making um whether it's on your phone or your tablet i mean i think it's just accelerated the ease with which people want to open a DAF, fund a DAF, and make grants and i think that that has affected how we bank how we i mean I, everybody i know practically has venmo even baby boomers right and if you want to split a dinner you can like split the cost of something in two seconds you know, that is part of the DAF world as well. So the, that ease of digital giving, I think, has really accelerated these numbers.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the, the payout rate and how you calculate that? Because that's an issue sometimes with folks who are a little critical of donor-advised funds. In your report, it's 21% previous year and, and more than 22% for 2019. How do you come about those numbers?
2: So there's three different ways that the payout can be calculated, and. This year, for the first time, it's on page 13. And this is a microsite on our website. So you go to nptrust.org, this whole report's there. Um, on Appendix uh, A is the grant payout. And for the very, very, very first time, we've taken our data since 07 and I've calculated all the different payout rates. And we use the Foundation Center payout rate, which is this year's grants divided by this year's grant assets plus the amount of grants distributed during the year. So, I know it if it's confuses people, but it's what it's the same calculation that private foundations use. And if you go to the chart, you can see there's um, uh, there's a method of year end of year assets it's anyway, it's all explained here. I don't want to take the rest of the time. But we go through the calculations, we pick the middle line. So there's one that's lower, there's one that's higher, and there's one in the middle. We picked the middle one because the foundation center had been using it for years um, when they were calculating private foundation payouts. And because our payouts are often compared to private foundations, we wanted to be cut apples to apples. Um, And so that's why we picked that. So when we look at it that way, the payout's been, um, this year, in this report, it's 22.4%. We do think with the next year, with the COVID accelerated grants, it's going to go up. We just don't know by how much. But um, sometimes the critics will talk about it as though we're trying to do something you know, nefarious, we aren't. We're taking a really standard way of doing it and applying it to donor advised funds. But we didn't want to feel like we were hiding anything because we aren't. So we decided to do the calculations for all the years in which we had data. And, um, and so for the first time, we're showing all the payouts. So instead of somebody, and this is for all the data we have, it's anywhere between 900 and 1,000 charities. Mm-hmm um it shows the aggregate data point so sometimes you see people pulling out just a few charities and quoting that number but we wanted to give more official numbers cuz we're you know we have all this data from these 990s and we wanted it to be transparent so i said it was my idea i said why don't we we do a chart in the appendix and and we can just show all the different grant payouts so it's not such a mystery to people anymore
1: i do want to touch on some of the debate about donor advised funds before we before we wrap up um... Where do you see that going in terms of regulations or legislation this year? I mean, I think part of the issue is looking at some of these numbers and grants are up even faster than contributions. At the same time, assets are up. And some yeah. of the commercial sponsors are, are, you know, you're talking about Fidelity, for instance, Fidelity Charitable. I think last year reported $30 billion with a B in in charitable assets, I mean, that's a lot of money that people think are kind of looking at st- sitting on the sidelines. I don't want to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be somebody to look a gift horse in the mouth when we're looking, talking about 15% up in value of grants, even before COVID, but there's a, still a lot more money in assets that, that could be going to use somewhere.
2: I have a couple of thoughts on that. and More than two, I probably have 25, but um, <laughs> I, a couple of things. One is you know, the n- number of DAF dollars relative to private foundation dollars, I think private foundations have, I don't know, six per- six times the amount of assets of donor advised funds. So private foundations are this gigantic pool. We're a smaller pool. They give out 5% that includes overhead. So their 5% payout includes overhead. And most of them see the 5% as a ceiling. We're paying out you know, take out any of these payout rates. I mean, the lowest one is 16, the highest one's 247 24-7. So there's three different payout rates you can quote. But we're giving out um, anywhere from three times to, you know, I don't know, almost five times the amount. So 24-7 is almost five. You know, and we're much smaller dollar amount. We're giving out a much higher percent without, that does not include overhead. So when you look at assets that are sitting there, I and mean, private foundations are sitting on way, way, way more assets than we are And they pay out by law less than we do. I think that the entities, the the folks that are looking at donor advised fund assets are seeing them as dormant. But the payout, if you look at the payout churn, when you're paying out that amount of money, you know, if nobody gave more, any more money, we would be you know, not not the perfect math, but if you're paying out around 20%, that's only gonna last five years, right? I mean, it's gonna, so when you look at the amount of money we're throwing out from our corpus, it's it's a much bigger percentage and our churn is much bigger. Dan, do you know Dan Heist? Did you follow Dan Heist? Uh,
1: yeah, we were on a. He he was on the show uh, probably two years ago. I'll, I'll yeah. link to the. Uh, I'll link to that episode because they had it They had an interesting. Um,
2: yeah. Paper so, a couple years ago. So I just talked to Dan yesterday. Of all things, I mean, he was asking. I he he was a. I teach a philanthropy course at Penn, and he was my TA one year when he was about to get his Ph.D. So I got to know him really well. But um. Dan did this project as part of his thesis, which said that if you just look at the snapshot of a year of DAFs, money going coming in and going out, it's about 80%. Now that's just a year. It doesn't talk about the things that are accumulated, but this is really a living, breathing tool that's really moving money and is easy. And so, you know, I think when you're growing a lot and your growth becomes more visible, people think, you know, it becomes much more of a, a target and amplified for people who are in policymaking positions. And, and they think I, you know, one of the things about this payout requirement that's been suggested, and, you know, I think um, I really support aggregate payout requirement. The thing that worries me about account by account is that I'm worried that it would be viewed by the donors the same way private foundation Donors view there, which it's seen as a ceiling and not a floor. Mm-hmm. So it's because donors are giving out around 20% in the aggregate. If we said, well, we have a payout requirement that's five, I'm worried that people would start calculating, oh, I like to give out this amount this year. I'm worried actually it would lower our payout. So I'm not sure that would do what people expect and want. I mean, I've been dealing with DAF since 1987. I'm kind of a grandmother in this business and I just think that people, if we had to start calculating that, and I think we would if it was account by account, and give that amount to donor, I would worry that the donor would see that as their grant budget. And um, we want to encourage donors to give grants as much as possible. And, you know, when I saw the half your DAF campaign, you know, being waged, I'm like, go for it. You know, if somebody wants to half their DAF, you would never do anything to stop it or discourage it or anything. It's like it would be, we would celebrate it even. So I just think there's a lot of money that's, getting moved into the social sector here. And, you know, if if they want to look at ways we can report better, I mean, we prefer federal reporting to state by state reporting, just because if we had to start having different reports for 38 states, or 40, that would be a lot of extra work and time and calculations. And are we reporting on the donors or the grants going out and some, you know, every state reporting requirement for state registrations, there's 38 states that require you to do fundraising registration, they're all different. And so every year, because I know because I sign them, every year I sign 38 different state requirements, disclosures that we have to hire somebody to do, we used to do it in house. If the DAF reporting would start to become state by state, I would think that, I'm not sure that would be to anybody's advantage. I think if the federal government, you know, made some standard reporting and had dormant account policies and things that we have, I think there's ways in which we could, Provide people with a lot of information to show that we don't have a dormant accounts, that people are giving a lot, and that we are, you know, the money that we do hold and invest. We have a percentage of donors that want to pass their donor advice funds on to their kids, and we ca- call that the legacy planning. And if there was a limit on how long the DAF was going to last, that would be a part of the world that we're in that people couldn't do it anymore, right? Because they would, you know, be, be, be a forced pad over a period of time. So I think the flexibility of donor-advised funds invites a lot of people to what I call the philanthropic table. And I welcome them to this table. I think once you start making it harder or making rules around it, you know, the table gets smaller.
1: Thanks to Eileen Heisman, President and CEO of the National Philanthropic Trust, for joining us today. You can find the reports and surveys we talked about in the story notes or visit nptrust.org. I'm Mark Harivana for the Nonprofit Times. Thanks for listening, and remember to sign up for our free e-newsletters, subscribe to our print edition, or visit us online at the nonprofittimes.com.
0: That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share the Fresh Research link on Twitter or Facebook to be eligible to win something from the NPT Library. You can also share on social media with the hashtag Fresh Research. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Fresh Research, a podcast from the Nonprofit Times, spotlighting research and trends in the philanthropic sector. Till next time, keep up with us at thenonprofittimes.com for all your nonprofit news.